Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. going to be talking with Mark Baker, who's a highly experienced journalist. He's currently the publisher of Inside Story, um, and he's written a piece on Anthony Albanese's visit to China, which is, of course, happening as we speak. Of course, one of the main issues, I suppose, is the trade sanctions placed on Australia in 2020 following criticisms from the Morrison government about uh, China's handling of COVID-19 and calls for a government inquiry. In response, China slapped a whole bunch of um, of sanctions on Australian products. And of course, Australia and China have long shared great deal in terms of ta- trade and the like. The other main backdrop to this, of course, is Australia's kind of strengthening military ties with the United States, which was really solidified with the AUKUS agreement and this coming just after Albanese visited um, the US for a state visit. And then Dave Nichol was coming up, going to be talking all about dog parks. And look, I know a lot of people have opinions about dog parks. There are more and more pooches in this city, and that means that um, there's a demand for more open spaces dedicated to dogs. It's going to be catching up with the executive director and CEO of Stella, that organisation that champions uh, women and non-binary writers. They've been running the Stella Prize, of course, for many, many years, but they've got an inaugural event happening this coming Thursday called Stella Day Out, which is a, a day of free events you can head along and see people speaking about a whole bunch of different issues in the literary scene. Triple R. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese is currently in Beijing and this marks the first time an Australian Prime Minister has visited China in seven years. The trip also marks 50 years since Gough Whitlam famously became the first Australian Prime Minister to travel to China and established diplomatic ties with the communist state. The context for this visit is very different though, set amidst continues, uh, China's continued rise as a global superpower, tensions over Taiwan and trade pressures following the country's imposition of various um, sanctions in response to Australia's calls for an inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 back in 2020. And so what is at stake in this visit and what might it mean for diplomatic relations between Australia, China and the US going forward? Mark Baker is the publisher of Inside Story and a journalist with a very long history, former senior editor and correspondent with Fairfax Media, among other things. And Mark joins me now on the line. Hello, great to have you on Triple R. Good morning. And so, obviously, Gough Whitlam's visit in 1973 was in many ways unparalleled in its significance. But how consequential is this visit by Albanese coming at this point in time? Uh, Well, very important, uh, clearly, as you said. uh, uh, This is the first Prime Ministerial visit from Australia in seven years. And, of course, in the intervening years, we've been through a a huge upheaval in the relationship uh, with uh, a lot of tension, a lot of... uh, tit-for-tat uh, actions against uh, from both sides, a lot of uh, acrimony. Uh, but I think what we've clearly seen since Labor came to power last year is a gradual uh, uh, return to a more harmonious relationship. And, of course, uh, as we've seen, a lot of the trade sanctions that China imposed have been lifted. Uh, quite a bit more are still in place and... and a big part of uh, Albanese's visit uh, to China will be to endeavour to get the last of those uh, 
those restrictions, including on Australian meat and uh, lobsters, etc., to be uh, to be removed. Uh, this also comes in the shadow of Anthony Albanese visiting the United States as well. And I mean, the AUKUS agreement is a big backdrop to this too. Does that sort of play into the significance at all? Or what kind of, I suppose, consequences might that cast over the meetings he's having with um, Chinese counterparts over there? Well, look, I think the Chinese, uh, well, the Chinese are under no illusions that uh, we are an ally of the United States. And in fact, uh, we have been an ally of the United States since the Second World War. And indeed, when diplomatic relations were established with China in the early 70s, uh, they were well aware of our partnership with the, the Americans. Now, I, I guess what we've seen over the years, though, is that uh, Australia has been able to manage that in the sense that China understands that, that we agree to disagree on issues, uh, we move ahead. There's no doubt that AUKUS has put a sharp new edge on on that issue from the Chinese perspective. Um, and, and obviously the plan to buy long-range uh, nuclear-powered submarines by Australia uh, equals, in the view of the Chinese at least, and, and I think not unreasonably, uh, represents quite a, quite a challenging uh, statement uh, in terms of defence and security. Uh, but I don't. I think the uh, the Chinese have a real, real, real world view, and there's no question that Chinese have spent a lot of money building up their own military forces over time. So, I think that shouldn't be an obstacle to to getting things back on a relatively even keel in terms of relations between the two countries. Something that stood out to me as I've been reading reports over the past few days of Anthony Albanese's visit is that it, you know, it's been quite rare to see Australian journalists in China over the past few years. Of course, people might remember in 2020, Australian correspondents Bill Bertels and, and Mike Smith were pulled out amid those sort of diplomatic tensions um, coming after Australia was pushing for that COVID inquiry. You're someone who's spent yep. time in China as a correspondent as well. What's your sense of, of the extent to which sort of journalists might be, Australian journalists, be in China in, in greater numbers? Well, I think, obviously, as you say, we've, we've, that's, that's been a, a big part of the fallout in the, in the, 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 the conflict between us and uh, difficulties between Australia and China has been that we're now in a situation where we have no, uh, no Australian journalists in China, or at least no Australian journalists working for Australian media organisations. And, and that period, which we've seen since uh, the ABC and the Australian Financial Review pulled out, uh, 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 that's the first time we've had no correspondence in China since the early 70s. So that's that's quite a big development. I think a serious problem for us in that we don't have, uh, and this is something we need all around the world, I think, is Australians reporting for Australia and Australian perspective on what's going on. And that's particularly true, in my view, in relation to China, um, I think there are moves afoot to 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 get some of those journalists back. Some applications have been made. I'm not across all the details, but the sense seems to be that we're a little way off people uh, going back uh, back into China, but hopefully not too far off. And do you have concerns? Uh, you know, I mean, I suppose a lot of the the news about Australia's relationship with China has been discussed through the lens of, you know, a potential war with Taiwan and the like. And there's a great potential for misunderstanding. And, you know, some people maybe aren't all that necessarily well versed in the nuances of China and Chinese culture and the like, um, you know, tend to frame things very much in those terms. What, what are the dangers of, of not having people who are really, you know, highly aware and, and knowledgeable about, about China itself and have spent a good amount of time there? Well, I, I think you, the, the problem you have when you have no resident correspondence is you get people uh, writing from a distance who, who don't have that um, 
first-hand experience on the ground. Uh, but more than anything, I think having journalists on the ground in China or any other country means that you're able to, to report and write beyond the sort of the headline stories you're able to to bring some nuance and background to the situation and to just have a sort of clear understanding of what what life's like on the ground in china uh beyond the sort of uh the headlines of uh, of government to government relations and disagreements and conflict uh, but what's the view on the street what's what are our ordinary people living feeling what are the consequences of life in china under a what continues to be a, a very restrictive and, and in many ways repressive regime, but how do people live? So, yeah, you, you want that. You want that context. You want that um, that richness to writing, which uh, you're not getting if you don't have people there. Yeah, important as well, I guess, given that we have such a, a large um, you know, Chinese-Australian population here and, and have for a very long time as well. Um, I mean, talking about press freedom and journalists and the like, I mean, people would be aware that you know, Cheng Lei was released um, a short time ago, came back to Australia. How significant is that, do you think? I mean, does that send a, a signal that there is, is much more willingness to engage with Australia at, at the diplomatic level around those kinds of issues? Uh, yeah, well, I don't. I think there's no doubt that there was uh, a linkage between uh, uh, Albanese's visit and uh, Chiang Lai's release. And uh, I think uh, my belief, and I don't have anything to go by this, but my my conviction is that uh, it would undoubtedly have been a precondition of Albanese agreeing to go, uh, and there'd be requests and and, re- and requirements and expectations on both sides. But I think uh, it would have been essential that uh, she was released before he went and I don't think he could have gone if she'd still been detained because that would have been the headline uh, you're here in China she's she hasn't been freed what's going on mm. uh, that would that would be impossible so so I was very pleased to see that she was freed uh, but I wasn't entirely surprised I thought that was uh, that, that would have been a precondition to him going um, of course another Australian citizen is still detained there a young Heng Jun. Um, who's uh, been accused by the Chinese of espionage and his circumstances um, uh, appear to be quite bad. Uh, it's said that his health is declining, so that's an issue and undoubtedly that's one of the questions on the agenda for this visit is uh, what's being done to, to seek his release. That's right, and, and that's something that you know has been suggested that would be raised. What else do you think will be the primary focus of, of those talks? Uh, I think it will be very much about... Um, restoration of uh, a full uh, trade and commercial relationship, undoubtedly issues of human rights and, and general concerns and, and concerns about rising tensions in, in, in the North Asian region, um, concerns about Taiwan, concerns about um, China's rather aggressive posturing in the South China Sea, all of that will be on the agenda. But I think what Australia, and, and I don't think there'll be any expectation that we can um, move mountains in relation to some of these issues, but they will be on the table. But I think what mostly Albanese will be seeking to do is to get the remaining restrictions on Australian trade lifted, and particularly uh, on Australian meat, which has been a, a huge, uh, has had a huge impact on Australian producers. Yeah. Speaking with Mark Baker, the, the publisher of Inside Story, speaking off the back of a, an article he wrote for Inside Story called Scaling the Great Wall, which is all about Anthony Albanese's visit to China and also contextualising that with Gough Whitlam's visit as Prime Minister 50 years ago. And I mean, we touched on the ways in which the previous Morrison government, um, you know, sort of didn't manage the, the relationship with China particularly well. And that, that led to these, um, these sanctions on, on very 
various products in Australia too. There has been a shift under the, the current government, but there also seems to be, I suppose, maybe you might say an echo of some of the sentiments from Peter Dutton um, that, that Miles has suggested in terms of, you know, Australia following the US into a, a possible war with Taiwan and that sort of thing. How do you read the balance between trying to restore the trade relationship but also the extent to which, you know, the government is willing to talk in these terms about a, a, a sort of, you know, military battle? Well, I think that sort of conversation and that sort of talk is is hugely unhelpful. I mean, we know there's a high degree of tension, and 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 the, and the degree of tension between the U.S. and China is 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 quite concerning, uh, as has been said by others. Um, uh, diplomatic links between Washington and Beijing are quite active, and there've been constructive meetings between key officials, economic officials, um, Blinken and others, but. Uh, what has been said is that there is a. It's concerning that there's there's hasn't been a corresponding uh, increase in in contact at a military level. So the the, the military commanders and the defence leaderships of the two countries, in in the view of some uh, observers, are, are not as active enough. And and that is really important to to see that incidents that the potential for incidents to to get out of hand if uh, if there's a clash. Uh, uh, that uh, that escalates, uh, so that's really important. So I think the talk and the action of all all should be be about uh, diffusing tensions, uh, to, to to talk and to to avoid the possibility for a, for a dangerous uh, mistakes to be made. Uh, I don't think it's helpful for Australian for, for politicians of any stripe, and particularly for the Australian defence minister, to be to be standing up and saying, "Well, oh yes, if, if there is a." If there is fighting over over Taiwan, then of course we'll, you know, inevitably we'll be part of it. Um, is that what we're where we want to be, and is that the message that we want to be flagging? Um, I don't think so. Yeah, and one of the the major incentives for for China is to, uh, or they're seeking Australia's support for um, them being part of the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. How likely is it that Australia will sort of lean into that and, and offer their support for for China joining that? Uh, good question. I don't really have a, a, a clear sense on that. Obviously, it's something that uh, China is actively pursuing. Uh, it's it's interesting, of course, because the uh, the original incarnation of this uh, Trans-Pacific Partnership was an initiative that was seen very much as an attempt uh, led by the United States to to counter um, China's growing sort of uh, uh, trade power and commercial power and yeah. economic power. So bring together all these uh, Pacific Rim nations uh, in a you know sort of a, a big sort of free trade uh, agreement. And now, of course, <laughs> China with the hand up and says, "Well, we'd like to come along <laughs> too." So uh, it's interesting politics. So I don't, I really don't know how that will will play out if it will be talked about publicly during this visit. But certainly, uh, as we understand it, that's something that China is looking looking to to move forward. So. Yeah, very interesting times. It's been great having your thoughts on Triple R this morning, Mark. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. Mark Baker there, publisher of Inside Stories, someone with uh, many decades of journalistic experience, a former senior editor and correspondent with Fairfax Media and someone who was a, um, a China-based correspondent back in the 1980s as well. Uh, you can read his piece, Scaling the Great Wall, in Inside Story. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
The number of dogs registered in the City of Melbourne has doubled over the past five years and that means there's increasing demand for areas to take them for their daily exercise. Councils and the state government have been more active in installing pooch-friendly infrastructure in designated areas, which can include standalone dog parks and off-leash areas where dogs are able to share reserves with their human companions. To help us understand the impact of our ballooning dog population on our communities and green areas, I'm joined by a professor in urban planning at the University of Melbourne and father to Perry the Pooch, Dave Nichols. Hello. Hi, Dylan. How are things? I'll just turn your mic on. How okay. Hi, Dylan. How are things? There we go. Things, yeah. things are very good. Yeah. Um, look, I don't have a pooch. Where do you take Perry? Perry and I, we have done quite a few dog parks, um, not just in Melbourne. Uh, um, we have, there's a couple of goodies in North Melbourne, um, very distinct characteristics between, you know, that uh, of those two parks. Um, one is much more sort of tougher you know, um, big big boy park, and one is uh, really an, an all sorts kind of park. Uh, so yeah, there's two in North Melbourne. There's there's a really uh, there's a really nice one um, up near, um, I guess, close to Essendon Airport. Um, that's uh, one of those great ones that's kind of in two parts. So there's big big dogs in one area and small dogs in another. Is that designated? Are there signs? Designated. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. And. Um, where else? So there's a there's a great one in Footscray that uh, we really like, quite uh, quite scenic. Um, so yeah, there's there's quite a few around. We've also, we, when we went on, we did some I did some field work, and he came along. Um, we drove up to Bathurst Orange and back uh, a few months ago, and uh, we made sure to check out every dog park along the way. <laughs> uh, in New South Wales, they're more into kind of uh, I'm going to say sort of gymnastics kind of equipment. There's okay. kind of like you know sort of like you're training your dog to go and go in a dog show or something. It was very Sydney. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's all about achievement there. Um, yeah, so that was um, that was good research. But uh, yeah, that, so we do we do utilise dog parks, but we do also, you know, I like to find places um, that are kind of you know quiet places, open spaces that where he can just run run around and uh, chase a ball, which he doesn't need to do for a lot for a long time. He's what he's fourteen months old now, and he's uh, a fairly petite little thing as well. Oh, uh, you haven't seen him for a long. Oh, right, right, okay, yeah, yeah. So he's not allowed in here anymore after he interrupted the interview. <laughs> he was, yeah, I know. Um, I've got a, I've, I'm, my long-term ambition is to have him trained to, uh, to be uh, radio-friendly. But anyway, um, so, but, you know, the question of dog parks, is, there's a lot of really interesting issues and I've, I have done no research for this talk. Excellent. Uh, except my day-to-day life. Um, you know, I think that um, – there are some issues, like for instance, so recently, I mean, this, our state government is is trying to be dog friendly, and it obviously sees value in that for all kinds of reasons, um, and um, and a recognition of reality. And as uh, as you said, there's been this big increase in dog ownership, and of course, some of that is, comes out of COVID, and there are um, <clears throat> issues following on from that. Clearly, um, so a lot of people took on. Uh, a pet when um, when COVID. I know there was a huge demand for mm. them uh, for dogs uh, in 2020, and uh, I think a lot of people um, weren't quite equipped for for what to do. And also, that's you know an absolute problem. I, I think it's also true of children born around that time. They're not socialised. You know, they can't be. They couldn't have been. Yeah. You know, so um, there's that extra issue. And they had a lot of human attention at that time. Oh, they had a lot of so attention. Much, yeah. and that's true. Yeah. Yeah. But they, but so that was a, I guess a plus, but um, except that they might have less of it now. But there's um, 
the, the minus is that they they couldn't necessarily socialise with other dogs that much and they couldn't necessarily go, you know, the long walks are out of the question, as we mm. all remember. So there are those 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 problems. But the government, you know, our state government is quite um, pet-friendly, not just dog-friendly, but pet-friendly. And so there's been that, um, that situation where um, uh, people are... In, entitled now um, obviously lots of renters have owned pets and just not said anything about it uh, to their landlord but um, now it's um, more or less legal yep and uh, so that means with that comes this extra kind of recognition that there needs to be places for if you've got a dog um, that you can take it where it can interact with other, with other dogs and also that where I would say people who don't like dogs or don't want to, you know, or small children, all those kinds of things that might be, they might want to stay away from dogs, um, they can stay away from those places. And it's, uh, so it's a, it's a bit of um, segregation, but I think in the main positive. Yeah. The, the other interesting thing is about this for me is that it's, it's meant that small, um, what you're going to, what I would call kind of waste, waste space, waste open space, or, you know, extra marginal fringe open space can actually be given over to this kind of thing. So there's, when you look at, you know, since for a hundred years now, uh, councils have, uh, wanted to hit targets of open space provision, but that has often meant, you know, being in the kind of, um, you know, cap- capitalistic materialistic society that we are, um, that has often meant, open space that's space that no one else could use or wants to use. So it's left open and it's not it's not being, um, you know, uh, there's no residence there, there's nothing polluting happening there, that, but it's, um, and I suppose technically if it's got some trees on it, then it's soaking up um, carbon monoxide or whatever. But, the, um, but there is a lot of that kind of space, uh, not just in, in the inner city, um, all over the place. You know, I guess uh, there, there was a... a a long habit of local government in inner city areas uh, in the 50s and 60s to buy up a housing allotment or two mm. and just demolish the house and say, hey, there's your park, there's your local park, and it's, you know, some dingy little thing. So um, so there is a lot of that kind of space, which I think people in in the present day would accept, you know, with some... Obviously, there are always going to be some exceptions, and uh, parents of really young children might be that exception. Yeah. But essentially, um, there is a lot of that kind of space that could be used for this sort of purpose. And there's examples of like where I am, uh, you know, underneath the new sky rail and that kind of thing as well, like just fairly exactly. small parcels yeah. of land that otherwise probably wouldn't be used so much, but you see people there with their pooches all the time. So often they can be quite small areas, and I imagine that's a little dog's park, that one that I'm, that mm. I'm thinking of. Mm. Um, but in terms of that that mixed use, I mean, where do you see those controversies arising in terms of what should be set aside for dogs versus, you know, dogs and people yeah. areas? Where, yeah. where are the pressure points? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, I, I think that – I mean, I've seen – I've been in the, the dog park um, in North Melbourne where um, – Mothers will bring their children into the park just to because the kid. Oh, my kid loves dogs. You know, mm. I mean, I I personally think there's a there's some danger there, but maybe there's danger everywhere all the time. So you know, there's there is there are issues though. Uh, there are people who will strongly object to the idea of a dog park near their house. And what I find interesting about those objections is that it's often very much like the objections that uh, come with community gardens. Mm. Community gardens are often um, p- local people object to those because of smell, noise, 
uh, and uh, think you know they say that it'll bring rats into you know I mean you know that's nonsense. Um, I don't think, think it's even true with community gardens really, but uh, whatever. I mean it's really uh, in nine times out of ten, and I guess there are always exceptions, but nine times out of ten, it's it's actually we just don't we don't want people coming in and uh, we don't want strangers in our street. You know that that kind yeah, of yeah 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 it's our, kind yeah, of our patch. Our patch and the wrong kind of people will come along. Um, very short-sighted, I think. Uh, sort of a failure to recognise that, you know, use of uh, of an area is is one of the s- things that makes it safest of all. But um, so if it doesn't really matter if they're strangers or if they're people who have a stake in a place, so the users of a dog park, for instance... Um, I remember it was funny because the dogs were more reactive than the people. But I remember there was in the dog park near uh, our near me, there was a um, uh, actually literally a, a fight broke out in the uh, the car repair place across the road. Like literally one man chasing another around this garage area. Gee. But the dogs and the people, we all stopped and you know <laughs> fixated on this action. Um, it was uh, it was. Did it was the dogs take? take down the assailant or <laughs> the dog, well there's a fence you know there's a fence so no of course they would have of course they would have um ducked into a phone box and put on a put on a cape and, right. uh, yeah uh yeah no I, I i think we probably all agree we weren't quite sure who the assailant was in, right in okay. that, who's, who was who was to blame there but um there is that element of of a of a dog park and there are those objections and you know i know in some instances it's i mean some people really genuinely dislike dogs and i think that's totally fair yeah um or it's it's a it's a recognized opinion uh and you know and some dogs are are a nuisance and yeah i mean dog shit's not the not the most pleasant thing in the world but i think people are a lot more responsible about that these days than they ever have been in the history of the world Mm. uh there's always going to be a few people who spoil it yeah well uh, that's right it's probably people owners more than the dogs in a lot of cases as well like the dogs don't pick up their own shit that's, that's <laughs> true Dylan. You, that's, that's right. they're not true. holding up their end of the you bargain you do know dogs you do know dogs. you don't have one but you know what i know i like. know what they're like speaking with dave professor dave nichols um, from the university of melbourne all about dog parks and you know i mean as i said i don't own a dog but i have had encounters where you know you're out in a park and there's dogs off leads and they come up and try to get at your lunch you're like this yeah. is really annoying yes and the owners just you know they're laconic they're like oh isn't yes. that cute it's like well it's eating my burrito now yeah. so so, no. Yeah. Um, you know, all that aside, like, you know, there are, with ballooning dog populations, there's going to be those kind of um, issues where certain residents sort of don't appreciate their local park being overrun by dogs and that sort of thing. But they're also really important um, kind of locations of social connection, I imagine, kind of in a way like there's good karma networks and that sort of thing as well. I've heard from friends that there are these, you know, they're great sort of meeting points, I suppose, for getting to know neighbours and, and, you know, becoming friends with them. Well, that's that's absolutely correct, and I've discovered as a dog owner for, uh, over a long period of time that, and I I don't have children, but I I um, understand it's the same that you know people figure that if you've got a dog, you know you can't be all bad. People are, um, and and it's always a it's a starting point for conversation, yeah. etc. I mean, I just and this is something I would never talk to a, a random person in the street, and I wasn't. I mean, maybe on some part of my brain I was thinking about the conversation we were about to have, but I saw a woman walking a beagle down. Uh, down the street, just outside the studios here, and I'm a I'm a big Beagle fan. And I just said said to her, you know, my you've brightened my day by you know yeah. this beautiful Beagle, and I would never you know I would never <laughs> say that to anybody, man, woman, anything, you know. Um, 
you know what? I might say something to someone about their T-shirt sometimes. Oh, you brightened my day by your lovely shirt or no, something? No, no, no. If it was like a band, an obscure band yeah, sure, that I was yeah. like, you know, a point of connection, um, you know, I like that band. You've never heard of them. You just like the T-shirt, you know, that kind of thing. No. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, you, I think you will uh, – you, you do have those kinds of uh, connections and, and networks are, are born from those kinds of uh, situations. Uh, I immediately thought of... Remember that in the in the 90s there was a band called Love Me, a Sydney band they're called Love Me? Yeah, amazing yep. band, really great. They they formed entirely out of dog, a dog park group right. of people who first knew each other through the dog park and go. then um, decided they wanted to play in a band together. I'm sure that's not the only instance of I'm that, sure. but um, that's the one that I know of. But, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, a friend of mine actually got given free tickets to the entire AFL final series from someone he met at the dog park, which was amazing. Um, right, yeah. I've also heard of real community breakdown and politics at the dog park if someone's yes. got a pooch who's extra aggressive or yes, something like that, yes, and that yes. can really be an issue oh, totally. <laughs> some people absolutely. as well. I mean, that's, yeah, that's community. Yeah, no, Absolutely. So that's I think you know you're 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 dragging me into that area which I I fully um, is something a, a lot of my mind of um, you know people who can't control their dogs mm. and people who um, and dogs who haven't been properly trained and stuff and that is absolutely absolutely an issue and I think that that's something that's the next stage in this and you know there's those kinds of things where you th- you know you think well, anyone can have children anyone can have a dog anyone can you know whereas if you um if you're driving a car you you've kind of you know you've signed up to a, a range of responsibilities yeah. and yeah. obligations um and you also you have a license that says you can do this properly and responsibly uh and you know uh you do technically license your dog but you don't anything more you, you know you don't make any kind of other undertaking yeah. that my dog can actually behave and that is uh that's a big issue and i'm not quite sure you know how how much political muscle could be brought to bear on on that um i mean i go to east Keelor uh, obedience uh group training on sunday morning so you I, I don't perry. just go by myself i go no i go with perry <laughs> um and he um you know they are they give fabulous advice uh, but you know, as a, a a fabulous non-profit place, they give fabulous advice about things like like this uh, and about how to you know you know the the number one thing is keeping the dog under control. Yeah, yeah. And if everybody went to that kind of place, um, you know, if everybody was com- required to go to that kind of place, <laughs> um, the world would be a much a much better place, I think, um, for dogs and and for people. But I think people, you know, don't necessarily understand and and the. The absolute, and I think you were leaning towards this as well, Dylan, earlier. Um, a lot of the time it's the owners that are the problem, much more than the dogs. Mm. You know. And I suppose it's more of an issue with higher density living and that sort of thing as well and, and not having vast open spaces. Like I grew up near the beach and, look, our dogs were pretty unwieldy growing up, but they had a vast tracts of land yeah. to run up and down and they didn't cause too many issues. Um, what's on the agenda for, for Perry this week? Any dog parks in the calendar? Uh, n- n- um, look, maybe not. Possibly on... Possibly tomorrow morning, um, we might um, we might go. It's a Clayton Clayton Reserve. I'm going to name it. Wow. Uh, not shame it. You really move Clayton, around. Clayton Reserve in um, not not in Clayton. Clayton Reserve in North Melbourne. Ah, okay, right, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. There's uh, so that's um, that's a pretty decent fenced place. It's right near a road, so you know it's a it's the kind of park that you would never go there for for anything, uh, you know, for quiet 
time, really, I don't think. But um, so that's always a good a good place to go. Um, I'm going to uh, Brisbane at the end of the week, so Perry's going um, into um, accommodation for for a few days, which you know I'd feel bad about, but he absolutely he loves, loves it so much that I'm actually it irritates me how much he <laughs> how much he wants to go there. Um, so he, he must tell them terrible stories about me, but. Um, yeah, otherwise, um, pretty quiet. We we walk a lot locally. That's um, that's our thing. Yeah. Well, if you see Dave Nichols out at a dog park, be sure to say hello, compliment him on his dog. It's been um, great catching up. You might maybe have just one more chat for the rest of the year. Kind of got a month or so at this show left. Um, always great to have you in, Dave. Thank Thanks, you very much. Thanks, Dylan. Good to talk. Cheers. Triple R. Stella Day Out is a free one-day literary festival that celebrates and promotes the outstanding contributions of women and non-binary writers to Australian literature. And to fill us in, I'm very happy to be joined by the Executive Director and CEO of Stella, Fiona Sweet. Hello, Fiona. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Dylan, and good morning. And so this is the inaugural Stella Day Out Festival. Where did the idea come from? Oh, the idea... Well, I've only been in the job for a few months, but... I've spent quite a bit of time going to literary festivals around Australia, which are absolutely fantastic, and I absolutely adore them, and they're rich with uh, literature and people listen to conversations, but they are something that people need to spend money on to enjoy, and I decided that Stella, being a women and non-binary-led organisation, that it would be great for us to be able to provide something that was free, so and something that would support the Stella prize-winning authors as well. So Stella Day Out was kind of a little bit of a play on Big Day Out, of course. Yep. <laughs> uh, and we've got four talks for Stella Day Out with Stella prize-winning authors. Fantastic. And, and I mean, I, I love the idea of a, a free festival and, and especially one that, you know, celebrates the, the contribution um, of, of women and, and non-binary writers and also, I guess, celebrates the literary culture of a city as well. I was recently doing some overseas travel and kind of stumbled across a free literary festival and it was just a, a really amazing way to soak up the offerings of a place that, you know, I wasn't too familiar with. I guess in Melbourne, you know, we have things like the Wheeler Centre and Melbourne Writers Festival. Where do you see Stella fitting into all of that? Well, we're not a festival, and we're not, uh, and we're not wanting to be a festival. I think what we're really trying to do is um, confirm our purpose, which is to support women and non-binary Australian authors. So the way we do that is, of course, with the very, very important Stella Prize, which uh, the first prize is sixty thousand dollars in cash, which we know changes an author's life. It gives them time to write. It gives them opportunities to have that space to consider their next book. Uh, and that's been something that's been going on for this is now our 12th prize coming up in 2024. So that's always been the intent of Stella was to promote and support um, women and non-binary writers. And my job, I suppose, when I came into this position was to see how else we could support those writers. And the cycle is very much uh, publishers selecting writers, and, of course, bookstores, um, virtual and real, selling those books and creating that lovely kind of loop, if you like, of success for all the players within the literary community. So by introducing a Stella Day Out, which is free, it allows different readers to come and engage with 
these authors. It gives them opportunities to listen to why they write, how they write. It gives them opportunities to possibly um, purchase the book, and we've got a bookseller on the day as well. And that then just continues to uh, create a focus for these authors and shine a light on their literature. It's great because, I mean, you know, Stella has been such a powerhouse over those 12 years and, and you know, really recognising writers who might not necessarily have got recognised otherwise because of some of those inbuilt, you know, biases that we have in, in not just the literary industry but, but many sectors and industries across society as well. What's the role of kind of fostering a space to have conversations and share ideas underneath that kind of broad ambit that, that Stella has? Yeah, well, the the founders are actually giving a talk, um, well, some of the founders, not all the founders, and we're going to really be investigating why they chose to develop the Stella Prize. And we're going to look at, um, I suppose, the bigger picture, which is can we, by uh, shifting the dial within the literature world, can we have an impact on, on the broader community? Um, that was always the goal and aspiration of the founders and it's maintained through the organisation for these 12 years. So there's sort of, we're looking at these kind of mechanisms. There's a project that has been running since the inception of Stella Price called The Count, which is a quantitative and qualitative look at editorial for women and non-binary authors. It looks at um, publishers, who publishes them, and it looks at the number of women and non-binary authors winning other prizes other than Stella. And that's been tracked since the beginning of the Stella. And I haven't got the numbers in front of me, Dylan. I'm really sorry. That's but there, has no been, <laughs> there has been a very significant change in the number of women and non-binary authors winning prizes, being reviewed, not just the, the width or the column centimetre of the reviews, but the kinds of reviewers we look at as well, like the quality of reviewers. And that has all changed since Stella came into inception. So they're pretty good outputs. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, you, as you mentioned, you came on board at Stella earlier this year in March, um, and previous to that, you, I guess, predominantly worked in sort of visual arts. You were the artistic director and CEO of the Ballarat, uh, Ballarat International Photo Biennale, for example. I understand your dog is called Stella, so it feels <laughs> like it was written in the stars for you to for take this job. It's pretty funny. Stella's 14 years old, so really when she was uh, created or born, there was no knowledge that I would move into Stella. I've always been a huge fan of Stella. I've always been a uh, a very strong reader, I suppose, is the best way to describe me. And even about five years ago, I, I decided to do a two-year project where I only read Australian women writers. So I've read a lot of the Stella books, which is really handy. But, yes, I come from visual arts, but I come from, you know, um, a, an idea or philosophy about creating a space for artists, and that's what my role is. So I don't intervene with the creative process. What I do is I look at the opportunities and the roadblocks and try and find solutions through organisational change. And that's what I did in Ballarat. When I started in Ballarat, I had um, a very small audience, uh, a lack of, I suppose, a lack of knowledge by the local community about what the Biennale did. And within the six years, we sort of transformed the festival into a really well-loved festival within the town, mm. uh, which provided a sense of pride for the community, which was wonderful to see, but also supported quite a few uh, women and non-binary photographers to, to be uh, exhibited in the Biennale. 
Fantastic. Have a nice yeah, and I mean, it, it's good to know you didn't change your dog's name at the last minute just to make a, a good impression <laughs> at the job interview. <laughs> but you know, one of our one of our judges, BJ Silcox, who's also the uh, director for Canberra Riders Festival, she has just. Uh, just uh, acquired a dog and she called her dog Stella as well. Amazing. So that was intentional, yeah. Well, that's a great name. Um, and so amid all this, I mean, do you have time for, for much reading at the moment? Uh, yes, I have, actually. I've just um, finished West Girls and I've just started... Alexis Wright's new book, which is 800 pages long, wow. which is a little bit daunting, uh, called Praiseworthy. Fantastic. And I read a few books on the go, and I'm reading Jane Harrison's The Visitors. Just wow. finished Deborah Conway's uh, biography, Book of Life. I'm just looking at my books on my stack. <laughs> and then I've also just finished a Deborah Levy, who I adore, English, English writer as well. So yes, I read a lot, but now it's not just for pleasure. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And impressive that you can keep books, you know, multiple books on the go as well. I'm notoriously bad at that, but I guess, it, you know, it's all part of the gig now. Um, so let's talk a bit more about Stella Day Out coming up this Thursday. What have you got in store? So there's four, um, four events. Uh, the first one is The Language of Poetry with award-winning poets Ty Orn and Lucy Van. Um, and that's hosted by Nadia Nays, who's the editor and founder of the Australian Multilingual Writing Project. So they're going to talk about poetry. And for viewers who know a little bit about Stella, the last two Stella Prize winners uh, are poets. So that was quite interesting, just talking about poetry. And then graphic novels, something very close to my heart. I remember the first time I read a graphic novel. Um, I've forgotten his name. Someone Baxter, Ted Baxter or... Gordon Baxter, anyway. So there's a lot of interest um, in women and non-binary writers who are moving across into uh, graphic novels. So Eloise Greel and Mandy Ord, who are both Stella Prize-listed authors, they're going to discuss graphic novels. And that's hosted by Astrid Edwards. And then the third talk for the day, as I spoke about earlier, is the Stella Pride story. Uh, and we've got Monica Ducks, Joe Case and Christine Gordon, who are three of the five uh, founders of Stella. And we're going to find out a lot more about why they chose to do it. And I suppose I'm really interested to see how they feel the change has um, impacted society over the last 12 years because things do change. Yeah. And then the final, which is unfortunately sold out, but the other three are not, is called After the Jaguar, and that's with Sarah Holland-Bapp, who's the winner of the 2023 Stella Prize, um, and she's talking to Astrid Edwards, but that's already excitedly sold out. Excellent. And, and I mean, you say so out. It is, of course, free, but people need to register to make sure that it's not overflowing. So if people do want to, want to head along to either of those first three events and, and just sort of soak up what this day has to offer, what's the best way for them to do so? The best way is for them to go to the website, which is Stella, S-T-E-L-L-A, dot org, dot A-U, and then they can click on the homepage and go straight to the ticketing. 
So I think it's through Eventbrite, but it's easier to go through our website. And yes, you're absolutely right. It is free. So sold out is the wrong word. I don't know what the word is when you sell out <laughs> I always when it's find free. hard to know what to say, but anyway, you can <laughs> register and, and get your free ticket. <laughs> yes, and we just love, we'd love those, all the sessions to be completely full because it's fantastic for the writers and the moderators to have a full crowd. So yes, that's why we're here to hopefully excite people to come along. Absolutely. And plans to do this again in the the future? Yeah, so we've, uh, yes, every year. So uh, Melbourne is the first. I've just been down to Hobart to set up Hobart for February in 2024. And then in two weeks, I fly up to Sydney to lock that in. And then there'll be Brisbane, Darwin, Perth, Adelaide and Canberra. And the plan is we do it, we roll it out every year. Of course, still in subject to funding, clearly. Yes. But um, yeah, that's the plan is that, um, that we do one in each capital city, and then we've had interest with regional and remote as well. So, But that'll be a little bit more expensive to roll out because what we're doing is we're having the authors from each city talk in their own city. Yeah. So that becomes a really interesting thing for the local community, but also just a little bit less expensive for us to manage. Of course. It sounds like a really exciting to be on the beginning of this journey and a really great event coming up here in Melbourne. Great having you on the show. All the best with it and uh, hope to chat again sometime soon. Thanks, Dylan. Cheers. Speaking with Fiona Sweet there, the Executive Director and CEO of Stella, talking all about Stella Day Out. So you can head along to the Stella website and get your free ticket if you want to go to that. Thanks for listening to the podcast of The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs, issues and culture program on Triple R. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am to midday. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to keep in touch at rrr.org.au.